Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from Bristol, Connecticut. Sarah, is that where you are? You're in Bristol today? I am. Yes, I am in a lovely control room today, bright and early. Nice. That's Sarah Abbott. Kayla Schwenk is working from his new home studio in the foothills of Connecticut. I'm Buster only working from Boston in a hotel here. I got the chance last night to go to Fenway Park. Reds, Red Sox. The Red Sox, uh, of course, came into that game last night having lost three of five games with Baltimore Orioles. This is what it sounded like at the very end of the game. Yeah, final score, Cincinnati 2, Boston 1. A lot of frustration for the Red Sox. And during the course of this game, I I saw something that I've never seen before, and I guarantee you will never see again. Joey Votto twice hit long fly balls that that bounced off the very edge of the home run boundary. The first one was to right center field uh, in that, uh, that wall that is right in front of the visiting bullpen. It hit the very edge and bounced back onto the field. Later in the game, this happened. Struck well to center. Drifting back toward the wall. And off the wall. Wow. I mean, it happened twice to Joey Votto tonight. Are you kidding me? Off the top of the wall and it came back? Did you hear there's a sound out there? He thinks it's gone. Yes, what does this hit? Top of the wall and came back. Yeah, that ball didn't go out. Can you believe that by inches? Crazy situation. Joey Votto, before the game, when he was taking batting practice, uh, he was actually telling teammates how hard uh, Joey's such a smart player. Uh, he was talking to uh, his teammates about how hard he had to hit the ball to hit it out in certain parts of the park, like 111 miles per hour. This spot, 112 miles per hour, this spot. So I guarantee you, knowing how Joey's brain works, he probably was thinking if he added 0.1 miles per hour, he would have had two home runs last night instead of two doubles. The Yankees, the Angels in Yankee Stadium last night, and Aaron Judge took a home run away from a prominent opponent. High fly ball, deep center. Judge back, still back, on the track. He leaps and he makes the play. Two outstanding defensive plays. That was the call from Michael Kay on the Yes Network. Matt Carpenter's been adding to the Yankees' offense. And Duhar leads off second. High fly ball, right field. There it goes. See ya. A two-run home run for Carpenter. Four-nothing Yankees. On their way to a 9-1 victory, the Angels have now in a losing streak. They're five and a half games behind the Houston Astros in the American League West. The Blue Jays and the White Sox. And Alejandro Kirk had a great day. The 2-1. Swinging a high fly ball. Out to deep left center field. Ingles stops at the wall. It's gone! Alejandro Kirk has done it again! A majestic drive. Out to left center field for Alejandro Kirk. That from the Blue Jays radio network. Kirk with two home runs in that game. The Blue Jays are rolling six straight victories. Tigers, Twins, game two of a doubleheader, and Jonathan Scope got a big hit in the bottom of the first. 
2-2. Swinging a high fly ball left field. Deep, way back and gone. Jonathan Scope with number five. Two batters in. Tigers have a 2-0 lead. Dan Dickerson, 97.1, the ticket. And Cody Clemens made his debut. He was hitting well over 300 with power at AAA. We saw him. He was a really good low ball hitter. There is power in this bat. Hits out of a deep crouch. Open stance. The strike one. Swinging a fly ball left field. Right to Garlic. And he makes the catch. On a line. Good swing. Out number three. Tigers get two on the scope. Home run. Tigers and Twins splitting a doubleheader yesterday. The Twins play shortstop Carlos Correa on the COVID-19 IL after he tested positive. The Cubs and the Brewers had a crazy game. It was 7-all, bottom of the eighth inning, and this happened. Deep drive to left. If it's fair, it's going to leave the yard. And the Cubs have the lead. Patrick Wisdom with a long home run. Get out the tape measure. Cubs lead by a score of 8-7. to seven. All the way on to Waveland Avenue. That was Pat Hughes on the Cubs radio network. An interesting move by the New York Mets yesterday. They demoted Dominic Smith to AAA. He had not gotten off to a good start this year, and there's also questions about sort of how he fits into their day-to-day use. So he sent to the minor leagues. It'll be interesting if they eventually find a trade uh, for Dominic Smith to go on to another team. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats, life happens live. In Arizona, after the Mets had blown out the Nationals 10 to nothing, the Braves took a lead over Arizona. Atlanta blew that. They played into extra innings. They took a lead, and they blew that lead as well. And with the score tied, this is what happened in the bottom of the 10th inning. The Diamondbacks with a chance to maybe walk this one off. I will waste a 2-0 pitch. And it's on the way, and a little flare, right field. That's a hit, and the Diamondbacks do indeed walk it off. Cooper Hubble delivers, and the Diamondbacks in 10. They won it 8-7. Yeah, so the Braves lose there after the Mets had won. The Phillies continue to flounder. Twice they came back to tie the Giants on Tuesday night, but in the top of the 11th inning, this happened. And the run scored. There's a shot to right. And forget about this one. Way back there. It's into the second deck. A spectacular two-run homer by Jock Peterson. And now they have added on. Seven to four Giants. John Miller with that call on CanBR. At the end of the day, the Mets lead the National League East by ten and a half games. And we're going to ask the question, are the Phillies dead or are they alive? Uh, And one more, he talked yesterday on the podcast about that whole issue between Tommy Pham and Jock Peterson. Pham returned from his suspension yesterday here in Boston where the Reds are playing, and he mentioned that Mike Trout was a terrible commissioner of the Fantasy League. Pham was laughing as he told this story. He said, Trout did a terrible job, man. Trout is the worst commissioner in fantasy sports because he allowed a lot of stuff to go on, and he could have solved it all. I don't want to be the expletive commissioner. I've got other stuff to do. Trout didn't want to do it. We put it on him, so it's kind of our fault, too, because we made him commissioner. So that could be the end of this whole saga, Taylor. What else do you have? 
Buster, a couple things here. Before we got started, our pal Sarah, she pressed publish on Wednesday's episode of First Take Her Take with Charlie Arnold. Kimberly A. Martin, L. Duncan, new episodes every Wednesday. Today, they're talking about Charlie's interview with Antonio Brown, Colin Kaepernick's recent tryout with the Las Vegas Raiders. Then they share how they are entering new phases in life and how their priorities have been shifting a little bit recently. And they discuss FOMO, social media, and how it changes the way people go about their daily lives. Check out First Take Her Take wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow the show on TikTok. First Take Her Take podcast is the handle. And one more thing, check out the latest entry in ESPN's Emmy award-winning 30 for 30 film series, The Greatest Mixtape Ever. It's the story about how a series of streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place and culture, defined the lives of players who starred in them, and changed the game forever. Stream it now on ESPN+. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Dune Lee covers baseball for ESPN. He's been to a lot of games in Fenway Park. Uh, in June, last night... I- <laughs> Watching what Joey Votto went through, uh, you know, hitting two balls at the absolute edge of the home run boundaries, first in right field uh, on that wall that's in front of the visitors bullpen, and then to hit the one on top of the green monster and have the same thing happen. I mean, would you back me up that, that this might be something you would never see again in the history of baseball? It might be the most unlikely thing that's ever happened in the history of baseball. Yeah, because if you take like Ichiro, for example, a dude who knows how to place a baseball anywhere. I'm not sure that if he just like was tossing up a baseball and just trying to do this, that he would be able to do that, especially because the outfield walls at Fenway Park are so weird to begin with. Like the one in right field is already so low compared to most ballpark. And then obviously you've got the green monster in left field to be able to place balls with that level of specificity and also have them bounce back. Like the odds of that are probably greater than one in a million, one in five million, ten million. 10 million. Like it's just something I've never seen before. And you, you rarely see that in general with just one of the walls. So to see that happen twice is like something you just never imagined seeing happening. 
for one player in one game, <laughs> right? I mean, just, just crazy. And I mentioned in the open about how Joey, before the game, was being so specific. He was turning around and asking uh, one of the staffers on the Reds, okay, how hard was the exit velocity in that ball? Tell me, you know, what was that, man? And he's getting the news back, you know, 106, 107, 108. And so he was so locked in. I can't even imagine how he processed that game and what happened last night. It was it was better for him, I'm sure, that the fact that the Reds won for the Red Sox that four <laughs> losses in six games against the Baltimore Orioles and the Cincinnati Reds, who supposedly are two of the worst teams in baseball. I can't figure out the Red Sox, June. Yeah, it kind of reminds me so far of 2019 and maybe a little bit more extreme than 2019, where the Red Sox were kind of middling around 500 the entire season. They would go through stretches where they looked like a team that could go into the playoffs and make some waves. And then they would go through stretches where they would lose games against teams they should win. So, you know, to see them drop all these games against the Orioles and the Reds, it's like, what are you, what are you doing guys? I mean, this is a team that made it all the way to the ALCS last year, had an off season where they add Trevor story. I think I was talking to some folks around Fenway park a couple weeks ago about how lucky the team was that the Celtics and the Bruins were winning as much as they were going deep in the playoffs, because if that hadn't happened, the pressure on this team would have skyrocketed, especially on Trevor story. And, you know, story was able to kind of hit his way out of that slump. And I think kind of help ride the Red Sox into a, a streak where they were getting closer to 500, but there's so many parts of this team that I think are kind of exacerbating one another, the struggles, you know, you know, in the bullpen, you know, putting more pressure on the offense and putting more pressure on the starting rotation that bullpen's a disaster. I mean, yeah. no, no way around that. I think people around Fenway and people who work for the Red Sox will admit that this group came into the season already thinner than they probably should be in a division that's as competitive as they are. But the biggest Surprise has been Matt Barnes being as bad as he has been. And I've talked to some of his former teammates where, you know, they kind of talk about how he's a guy who is one of the most talented relievers in baseball from a stuff standpoint, but he gets in his head so much, especially when he struggles that one bad outing can start to spiral into multiple bad outings. And then, you know, that he's too hard on himself because he's putting more pressure on the rest of the bullpen and the rest of the bullpen's already spread thin. Uh, and, And they're really, relying on guys like Tanner Houck to be kind of the bullpen anchor to replace a guy like Garrett Whitlock, who's obviously now in the rotation. They've had John Schreiber be very good over the course of the last few weeks. But Barnes is really the guy that I think is the key for this team um, to be able to kind of help at least relieve some of those bullpen issues. And they just can't depend on the bullpen right now to keep a, a lead late in the game. So if you're John Henry and that's your job now, I'm going to make you John Henry, owner of the Red Sox, at some point in the next two months, you have to decide whether or not to be buyers or sellers. And let's face it, if the Red Sox decide to become sellers, they're going to be like a one-stop shop uh, for all these contending teams because they have so many guys who are potentially free agents in the fall. And you start with Xander Bogarts, who could opt out of his deal. J.D. Martinez, who went into yesterday with the highest batting average in baseball. Uh, all the starting pitchers, you know, Michael Waka and uh, Rich Hill and Nathan Avaldi, Christian Vasquez, their catcher. If you are John Henry today, what's your instinct in terms of whether or not you're going to be buyer or seller? Well, if I'm John Henry, I'm first signing Muhammad Salah to a deal 
for Liverpool, <laughs> locking him up. Uh, but I mean, the Reds. I think you make a great point in that the Red Sox have all these perfect trade pieces to help improve a contender. I think Xander is kind of at the center of all of this as yeah. you know a, a franchise face, and you know the Red Sox fan base still, despite the Mookie trade relatively going decently well, not being a disaster for them in terms of the return that they got, that sour taste is still in their mouth. And this has been kind of a decades-long relationship between the fan base and the front office, um, specifically the owner's box, where there's been just a number of questionable decisions that this team has made in regards to just feel and employee relations between, you know, Mookie getting traded as the face of the franchise and a guy that people wanted in Boston for decades, you know, from everything I've heard from Mookie and and people in his camp, like Mookie wanted to stay in Boston at the right price. uh, And he was still open to that. Um, And Xander kind of falls into this similar category where people have wanted Xander in Boston for a really long time. I think more so than Mookie, Xander really, really wants to stay in Boston. Like he, he signed a deal the first time around that was a hometown discount because he wanted to play in Boston for so long, you know, prior to this off season in spring training, Xander was talking to people close to him about being willing to move to second base and third base at some point down the road because he wanted to stay in Boston and wanted to make sure that he could play for the same team for the rest of his career because he cares so much about winning. Uh, and he wanted to play his entire career in one city and in, in the one place that he's known. And I think that if Boston is put in a position this year where the, where they have to trade Xander Bogarts, which if they are out of contention is a very logical move, but is going to enrage the fan base because it means that you have traded away two core foundational pieces of your franchise twice in the last three years. And Mookie and Xander, people were imagining those guys being the face of the Red Sox for two decades, even if they sign long-term contracts and they're not as good in the last five years. People wanted that to happen in Boston because they had brought so much joy to the city. And instead, Henry has taken a very, you know, cold calculating, you know, hedge fund Wall Street approach to this where as soon as these guys aren't worth the value that they're being paid. And, you know, from everything I'm being told, the guy that Boston wants to make an exception for is Rafael Devers, not Xander Bogarts because of his age and the generational offensive talent that Devers has. You know, if that happens twice in Boston where they have to trade faces of the franchise in, you know, almost back-to-back seasons, um, the fan base is just not going to be happy with this. And I think it's going to completely change the dynamic of that clubhouse and, motivating guys because they know that even if they perform well, they're not going to get paid in Boston because of the idea that guys aren't worth these long-term 10-year contracts that guys were hoping to cash in on at some point. Yeah. And that's the bottom line is that's the price to pay, right? For stars in baseball in 2022. If you want to keep those guys, that's what you're going to have to do. It was interesting. Yesterday, I was talking with a source who told me that he thinks that in the end, the Red Sox will pay both Bogarts and Devers, and he thinks it'll happen uh, as Bogarts begins free agency because Bogarts, as he's demonstrated in the past, his instinct is, look, in a fair deal, he'd like to stay in Boston, and that uh, subsequently they'll sign Devers. I, 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 I'm i not that confident that that's going to happen. I think Bogarts is gone. What I think I Bogarts is gone too, and I don't think it's anything to do with Xander Bogarts. I think that the front office is just unwilling to sign a guy who they don't think is going to 
play shortstop for you know the foreseeable future for the length of that entire long-term contract that he's going to get on the open market. Um, I just don't think that they see the value in that. Um, despite Xander being a clubhouse leader, the guy who has set the tone in that clubhouse um, for a really long time, he's one of those guys who says you know hello to every single person in the clubhouse every single day. Always has a smile on his face. He has that disposition because he grew up in Aruba. And I think they're, they are willing to give that to Devers because Devers is, you know, in his mid twenties uh, and has a bat that is going to age well over the course of a potential seven to 10 year contract. Um, but, you know, I, I am worried for the Red Sox front office in the regards that I think the fan base, if Bogarts isn't back, there is going to be another significant backlash uh, and, I, I'm curious how that affects the dynamic of the clubhouse long-term because there will be a culture tone set that even if you perform well in Boston, you're not going to get paid here. And Boston has always been one of those destinations where you go to get your paycheck. It's always been the free agent dynamic. It's always been the hometown dynamic. And with Bloom's new you know, administration in the front office, um, that's clearly the approach that they don't want to take because, you know, they don't want to repeat the same mistakes that Dave Dombrowski made um, in terms of setting up the franchise long-term. Uh, obviously, Dombrowski won a World Series there and that, you know, Dombrowski does what Dombrowski does, but, you know, Bloom came in to kind of hit the reset button uh, and part of that reset button has been not giving out these really, really long-term contracts. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I, I do think that one question that has to be asked at the end of this year, because the, you know, the theoretical trade-off uh, for organizations that do this, where they, they, they uh, don't like to give out long-term deals, they focus on depth is okay. If that's been the working philosophy for the last three years, then why do we have such a, a crap bullpen? Because that's where the Red Sox are. Like in theory, to, to structure a team in the way they have this year. They should have more pitching depth, and they really don't have that much. All right, I want to ask you about the National League East. I mentioned at the top, the Mets' lead now is 10 and a half games. Is that division over in your mind? Oh, man, I, like, really wish I could say that the division was over, but it's the Mets, and you never know what happens with the Mets. Um, there's just always something, some st- something seems to happen in that clubhouse with that team. We've seen the injuries so far this year. You know, Scherzer's out for, um, you know, a month and a half, two months now. You know, we'll see what happens with Jacob DeGrom. But the depth has won out so far. I mean, we're seeing the depth. Tyler McGill had a really strong start this season. He should be coming back in relatively short order. And as, as much as, as, you know, I love numbers. You know, I think we both love the saver metrics and how, you know, it influenced the conversations we have in the game. But I'm also like a vibe guy and you walk into that clubhouse right now and it's not just like a, they're winning, they're in a good mood space. Like everyone I talk to around the Mets talks about how the culture of that clubhouse feels different than it has in the past few years. And a lot of people credit Max Scherzer and Francisco Lindor kind of setting the tone on a day-to-day basis. They're kind of just always there. They're always kind of engaging with teammates. Um, they're not closed off. And it's kind of set off this mood where everyone feels kind of safe and open to, you know, talking with other guys. There just is a really, really good vibe among those guys right now that I think is separate from the fact that they're at the top of the division. There's a lot of character guys in that clubhouse. You know, you look into the bullpen uh, where you have a guy like Trevor Williams, who's always been kind of a clubhouse tone setter. Adam Ottavino has kind of been a guy that teammates have always loved as well. There's a lot of guys who are just kind of glue guys from a personality standpoint. And then just from a talent standpoint, I think that the roster is just has a lot of depth. I mean, Chris Bassett 
in the absence of Scherzer and DeGrom has been really, really good. I mentioned Tyler McGill. Um, you know, they're in a place where they're good enough where they can send down a former first round pick in Dominic Smith to the minor leagues. Um, and obviously he's been struggling, but they're not depending on him to hit in order for them to get to the playoffs. And I think that it speaks really highly to just the quality of talent on that roster right now. I mean, you know, you had Eduardo Escobar kind of struggle at the plate from an offensive standpoint. Uh, but Jeff McNeil has been great this year. Brandon Nimmo has been great this year. Mark Canna has been, has been very, very good this year. You know, there's just a lot of guys performing. I think that what has made this roster different from other Mets rosters in the past is obviously Steve Cohen went out and spent a lot of money, but they spent a lot of money on depth to make sure that they have guys when other guys are struggling to kind of pick up and kind of set that I kind of taking the Tampa Bay Rays approach where, you know, you have enough competence across the board that you can kind of, bear the struggles of a couple of people or the injuries of a couple of people. And so from a roster construction standpoint, I think this is the best constructed mess roster in a really, really long time that not only has the star power at the top, but also has the depth as well. I think the division's over and I'm, I picked the Braves to win the division before the year started. I picked them to return to the world series and that might happen. Then when they get returned to the world series, because there's time for them to figure it out and get in the postseason, get on a roll like they did last year. But I think the Mets are good enough where overcoming a 10-and-a-half game deficit is going to be just about impossible for any, any of the other teams. One of those teams, the Philadelphia Phillies, about whom today we have a big question. Sarah? <laughs> Everyone cover your ears. Because I'm wanted, wanted, dead or alive. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, in the uh, you know, tradition started by Josh Macri, Sarah chiming in with that question about the Philadelphia Phillies, dead or alive, they have had excruciating losses in recent days. June, what do you think about the Phillies, dead or alive? Uh, I lean more towards dead, but I also think that this roster has enough talent. And I also so you're think saying they're still alive. Like I, you're- I still, I, they're like they're like heart is pumping, but they're on the ground like you know flailing right now. I mean, I I think that when you have David Dombrowski in the front office, like you can't understate that he might go out and just trade a bunch of prospects to, to go get some more talent to fix up this roster. And I think from like a core foundational standpoint, like, you know, real Mudo Castellanos, Bryce Harper, Schwarber, like, you know, Aaron Nola, who was my Cy Young pick at the beginning of the season. Like there's enough core talent here to make a run at the wild card, but the way they're looking right now, it's kind of hard to see it just given the lack of consistency that you've seen. Um, so I don't think they're quite dead, but I do think that they're, you know, you need to kind of give them a lifeline at this current moment. I want to ask you about, uh, Derek Jeter joining social media, uh, jumping (laughs) on Twitter yesterday, uh, Instagram profile coming on. Of course, uh, he had a lot of followers by the end of the day. He seemed to be having fun with it. If in fact he was the person who posted this. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I never really, I never really thought about whether or not Derek Jeter was on social media. So when he jumped on yesterday, it became a thing. We're like, okay, that makes sense. You know, having covered him, uh, I, I said this to Derek toward the end of his career that often when I would speak to journalism classes and I would be asked because Derek was such a high profile player, what was it like to cover him? And I would say, yeah, he's intentionally boring. And, and I told that to Derek, it was actually at Fenway Park. And he goes, I wouldn't say boring. And I'm like, Derek, like you dump, you, you mastered the art of saying a lot of words and saying nothing uh, throughout your career. And he kind of laughed, uh, you know, his big goal on a daily basis was to not 
say anything out loud that would become a headline the next day. But you know what? Maybe he's uh, far enough along in his life where he's gotten to the point where he doesn't care. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to join this conversation. What do you make of all uh, in a Derek Jeter? Well, Buster, I have a question for you, given you know your your time covering Jeter throughout the course of his career is, is there a part of his personality that you've seen that is not the intentionally boring part that you think can actually be good oh, for a social media account? Totally. Oh, there's no question. I mean, he's got opinions. He's a really smart guy. Uh, and I'll never forget, you know, he, uh, you know, again, this is in the context of covering him as a player at the time. It was an announcement that he was going to be the host of Saturday Night Live and a meeting like, oh, my God, like I'm going to be covering my eyes saying, poor Derek. And you know what, June? He was phenomenal. (laughs) He was outstanding. Uh, And that was a surprise to, you know, and I think that uh, is is part of what you're what you're uh, you're hinting at here. Like, you know what? This this could be some gold. Yeah. I mean, I think that Tom Brady kind of provides a perfect framework for Derek Jeter, where Brady has obviously when he's talked to the media been kind of the same in terms of being intentionally boring where he doesn't give headlines, but he shows enough of his personality and his sense of humor on there where it has kind of humanized him and grounded him in a way that I think has turned around the public tide and the public sentiment around Tom Brady. And I think that Derek Jeter, I think there's less negative sentiment around Tom, uh, Derek Jeter than there is around Tom Brady. But, you know, given the fact that the captain is by directed by Randy Wilkins is coming out on ESPN and then, you know, this season and, you know, Jeter's no longer the owner of the, you know, the public owner of the Marlins and the public face of that team. Like, I think people are ready to see kind of more of his personality. I'm curious to see kind of more of, you know, what he's like behind closed doors, uh, you know, you know, him as a dad and him as just as like a guy. Um, I think we've always been kind of curious about what that looks like. And I think that, you know, a very controlled setting. And I'm sure he has all his social media consultants as well. I think it's a perfect kind of way for us to get to know a guy that we've kind of viewed as this like baseball playing robot in the general public for such a long time. And I will tell you that I have hope for this documentary, the Jeter documentary, uh, because of, of what went on behind the scenes, um, you know, with the Jordan documentary and I didn't cover basketball, but my sense was that was greatly sanitized, you know, based on stories they'd heard around the edges. I think this one could be really good because the instructions, and I sat for four hours in an interview about Derek, the instructions to me and other people that I heard was, we want you to be brutally honest. Like there were people that Derek wasn't always close with who were going in there and they were telling stories. And I'm hoping that some of these stories come up because, you know, I've always said, I you know had such admiration for him as a player, how hard he played, you know, this whole thing about him being uh, overrated, it's a joke. He was a great player. He responded in big moments. I saw him affect the lives of kids. I also saw him be passive aggressive. <laughs> like he could He's be a human being, right? He was a human being. And so I'm, I'm really hopeful that we get all sides of it. Uh, you know, and shoot, maybe, uh, him, him joining social media is a sign that he's ready to have a full conversation rather than something that's, uh, yeah. you know, sort of uh, whitewashed as we, uh, as we go through it. I'm really, uh, I'm really excited for this documentary too. Cause, uh, you know, I've talked to Randy just, I remember I, I had a conversation with Randy, the director of the documentary, um, a, a few weeks before he kind of started shooting. And from what he told me, you know, Jeter was basically like, I'm opening up my life to you in a way that no one has ever seen before. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Randy's a really talented guy. He's a huge Yankees fan. He's very passionate about this. And they got everybody. I mean, they, they, they interviewed everyone 
who was notable and memorable in that Yankees tenure and in, in that during that time period. Um, if it's going to be as honest as you say it is from from your experience, the documentary, like I'm really, really stoked to see what happens because there is a lot of stories from that time. And uh, I know that they got a rod too. like I want to see yeah. more about the Peter dynamic. Yeah, like, Brian Cashman, I, who they had, they had difficult. He sat down for an interview and I know he was instructed, hey, you know, t- tell the stories. Why don't you be as honest as possible? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what you want out of a documentary. As, as much as I loved uh, watching The Last Dance, uh, I think that this has the potential to be something that's a sl- slightly more honest and grounded in reality. <laughs> All right. Uh, before you go, I want to talk about the City Connect uniforms. Uh, the other day, the Colorado Rockies, we got to look at those. And my son, who's got far more style than I do, he's 17 years <laughs> old. He loved them. How about you? Buster, I see, I've seen you upping your kick game to your sneaker yeah, right. over the yeah. course of the last couple of years. Um, I love them. And for me, it was something that I thought embodied exactly the spirit of City Connect, which was making a uniform that felt different. You know, Colorado definitely took a risk by going with this pine green, uh, you know, aesthetic for this uniform, you know, a color that hasn't been part of the Rockies colorway in, in the past. But they also added enough kind of, local touches where I've talked to people in Colorado or, you know, our, our editor, Dan Mullen on our baseball team is a huge Colorado Rockies fan. And he talked about how much he loved these uniforms because of all the small touches that like a lot of locals will, will love and appreciate. And I thought it, it kind of struck the perfect balance between taking a risk from a di- design perspective, doing something that doesn't really look like a lot of the current baseball uniforms while also kind of looking grounded. And I think that it, it kind of, it, 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 it was able to kind of toe a line between being something that pushed the, the line while also feeling, feeling something that feeling like something that, you know, we could have seen on a baseball field in the past. And I, I think this kind of ties into a larger con- cultural conversation I've had with folks around baseball about these city connect uniforms, where teams are starting to think about these uniforms, not just as the traditional, you put the team name across the Jersey and you have your regular uniform. People are starting to think about this, these uniforms as a canvas. And I think that this entire city connect series is going to start kind of a, a a train of thought for a lot of these teams and kind of rethinking how they view uniforms and how they can play with the design of the canvas because there's obviously a lot of ways that one can design a uniform, but baseball teams have kind of traditionally only done it in a certain way. And I think that teams are starting to think a little bit more outside the box because of the success of City Connect so far. My son, uh, Jake, is my one-person focus group, and I know this. He greatly <laughs> approves. He absolutely loves them. He's well, like, Buster, yeah. what was your take on it? Look, you, like you just, in giving your description, when you said pine green, you lost me as someone who has red-green color blindness. Like, I have <laughs> no idea. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I did love the Washington Nationals uniforms. As someone who was born in D.C., uh, that, that, like, seeing that, I'm like, okay, that makes complete sense. And I thought the Rockies uniforms were cool, but I'm completely unqualified because I don't even see what you see, June. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't so, know that about you. So, so yeah, the more you know. Terrible colorblindness. So absolutely. <laughs> All right, sir. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Buster. Appreciate it. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Yeah, Todd, I was at Fenway Park last night, and uh, your name came up a few times. Dave Meller, the head groundskeeper I talked with, uh, he was asking how you were doing, uh, and I was extolling the virtues of your the logo that you have uh, covered the Green Monster with with the 99 All-Star Game. Well, Buster, I'm going to correct you because I did not do the 99 All-Star Game logo. However, you would have been correct if you would have referenced the 90th anniversary of Fenway Park logo, which was in uh, 2002. And uh, a couple of other things along the way. But Dave is an amazing man with an amazing story. And I'm looking forward to getting up to Fenway sometime later this year, quite possibly after the All-Star break. So uh, always a great trip, even when the Red Sox are scuffling along and not able to score runs. Yeah, you're going down Bitter Boulevard uh, this morning. There's no question about it. Before we got started, we were talking about that game last night when they were shut down by the Reds, just as they were shut down by the Baltimore Orioles. Four losses in six games against those two teams. Hey, it's like, you know, it, it's as if it was uh, 1975 and the Reds and the Orioles were powerhouse franchises. And speaking of which, you and I talked about this a little bit before we jumped on to the last Reds win at Fenway Park. Game seven of the 1975 World Series. I was a very bitter young man then when that, that happened, Buster. <laughs> I remember bitter. it well. Very bitter 10 or 11 year old. <laughs> yeah, I was 11 years old. I was pissed off. It was, I just, you know, it was, it was, it was not a good situation, but time goes by. You get other bad memories. Good memories have outweighed those. I never thought I would see a championship in my lifetime, much less four, much less be at three of them. So, uh, like ba- baseball is kind of a, it's a metaphor for life. It's very Forrest Gump like. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and we shall see what we shall see, and hopefully the Red Sox can score some runs. I was telling June Lee about those City Connect uniforms that uh, were revealed last week, uh, You know, in particular that one with the Rockies, how my son absolutely loved them. What did you think? 
Oh, I love the Rockies ones. Uh, and you and I have been talking about this, you know, for the last year and a half, whatever it's been. And I know Julie loves to write about City Connect uniforms. Uh, as much as I hate my Red Sox City Connect uniforms, the Red Sox out there looking like yellow minions. I love the Rockies. I'm a big license plate guy. All right. Just like, you know, come at me here, Buster. Uh, and I think that these uniforms capture something uh, that is distinct and very Colorado. And, you know, they get into the weeds with a lot of the superfluous details that no one is ever going to see what's inscribed on the jock tag and all that. But the immediate impact of these and that green color, which you see a lot of that green color at beautiful course field. I think they nailed it. Yeah, uh, that's clear. June, June absolutely feels the same way. And, and I'm sure, uh, you know, as we go forward with more of those, uh, we're going to be hearing more from you about the, about those uniforms. All right, let's talk about this week's Phantom franchise. So Buster, the St. Louis Browns scheduled a press conference for 1 p.m. on December 8th, 1941 at Lyman's Cafe in Los Angeles, California. The big announcement involved the move of the Moribund Browns to L.A. starting in 1942. The Brownies had recently concluded their 12th consecutive losing season, and they shared a ballpark with the St. Louis Cardinals, an excellent franchise that commanded the attention of their city. Browns owner Don Barnes had quietly worked out the details of the move west, which included a deal with the then minor league Angels to purchase the team and stadium. Eager to have St. Louis to himself, Cardinals owner Sam Breeden would kick in a quarter of a million dollars to help send the Browns packing for the Golden State. The Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce guaranteed a minimum season attendance of 500000 for the first five years, including an offer to make up the difference if the guarantee was not met. Travel schedules were carefully worked out, and Barnes lined up the preliminary approval of his fellow American League owners. The Los Angeles Browns were set to become the first MLB franchise to change cities since 1903 and the first big league club west of St. Louis. A permanent stadium was to have been built in Long Beach to host the ball club. On December 7, 1941, Barnes arrived in Chicago, where a meeting of American League owners was to be held the following day to grant formal approval. However, that morning, Japanese forces staged a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, decimating the U.S. Pacific Fleet and catapulting the United States into World War II. Barnes made his presentation to the league the following day as scheduled, but he asked his fellow owners to reject the proposal. Our dream was shattered, he later told the Sporting News. With the scare of a West Coast invasion, we realized at once that Los Angeles was no place for the Browns. The other owners agreed, voting unanimously to keep the Browns franchise in St. Louis, where they won their only AL pennant in 1944 before finally relocating to Baltimore 10 years later and where they now play as the Orioles. But today, Buster, we salute the Los Angeles Browns. They are this week's phantom franchise. So do you think, Todd, based on the information you have, they would have kept that name? Because as you said it, I thought, boy, that that would have just landed with a thud, it, you know, and what we think of as Los Angeles today, the Browns. And then I was also thinking that, yeah, the Dodgers nickname doesn't really work necessarily either. That doesn't make any sense given the history of that nickname. But can you imagine? <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting, Buster. I've uh, researched the name of the history of the Los Angeles Lakers. And I was in L.A. last week. I saw Silver Lake. Not a lot of lakes in Los Angeles, but there were in Minneapolis where the Lakers <laughs> moved from. And I found a quote from the, I believe, publicity director of the Lakers at that time. And he said, you know, why change the name of the team? The Dodgers kept their name when they moved to L.A. The Giants kept their name. The Braves kept their name when they moved from Boston to Milwaukee. Uh, this is what was done. And uh, certainly 1941, uh, no team moves to speak of in major league sports back then. Very few, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking NHL, none in major league baseball, as I pointed out. So they probably would have been the Los Angeles Browns. That's, <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah. That uh, now that you put that in in full context, they could have, they could have had sponsorship with the famous Brown Derby restaurant in Hollywood. Buster. It could have been, it could have been a licensing bonanza. Just to met the 1941, 1942 Los Angeles bounce sponsored by the Brown Derby go and after a meal, blah, blah, blah. They could have done it. <laughs> oh man, this is why this is one of my favorite ones that you've done this year, and you've, you've done some great ones. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, everybody, just a, a refresher in the standings: Buster with six, uh, Taylor with five, Sarah needing to step things up with two. So here's this week's question: Which of these events took place most recently? A. David Ortiz was born. B. The Seattle Mariners played their first game. C, Willie Mays was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Or D, the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series, which took place most recently. Big Poppy was born. The Mariners played their first game. Willie Mays inducted into the Hall of Fame. Or the Pittsburgh Pirates winning the Fall Classic. All right. I, I've got a guess. Uh, anybody else want to go first? Sarah? You've been rolling. Um, I am going to go with whatever option B was. The Mariners playing their first game. Sure. We're going <laughs> to roll with that. Okay. Taylor, you want to go? Yeah, I'll go uh, Willie Mays. Pirates winning the World Series. I didn't think Buster is going to nail this. Buster, though. you knew that? Or, I mean, you sound so confident. You're correct. Wow. Yeah. Todd, October you, you, uh, 1979. I knew he'd have Todd, it. you and I talked beforehand. We were talking about the past uh, disasters, academic disasters that we both had. I, like you, love history. And so there are certain things, like I can get in sequential orders. That one it was like bang, 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 bang. I got that one. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm feeling good about things. But, you know, I shouldn't have told you that because now I'm tipping off what how my brain works. You're going to be throwing colors at me next week. I was just going to say, Sarah and Taylor, next week's question, study up, because we're going to be talking about the Pantone colors of the 1998 Arizona Diamondbacks. Oh, no. Oh, my there God. There you go. Purple, oh, little yeah. uh, eggplant, jade, copper, and off-white, of thanks to Buck Showalter. Well, I was just going to say, we might have to reach out to Buck to become part of this podcast to explain his thinking on the color scheme. Going in. And he, those off-white hats, if you remember. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah, even I thought those were a little bit off. But Buck, you know Buck. He had a reason for doing everything. So we, we will endeavor to find those out. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. Bleacher Tweets.
Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Wednesday, and I need a uh, shout out to Sarah here for her beautiful singing there in uh, in June Lee's segment. Well nice. Done. I agree, Sarah. What'd you think? Um, I thought I was a little pitchy, a little pitchy, but you know, <laughs> there's only room for improvement. Well, and 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 to be honest, here, Sarah, the reason why I asked you to do it is because I don't even want to come close to thinking about doing that and putting my voice out there. So thank you for stepping in. You're welcome. Taylor did a great job before the show. We did a couple practice rounds, you know, warm up the vocal cords, and Taylor nailed it. So I don't know. Maybe next time, something to think about, Taylor. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of dead or lives coming up here now. Once we get into <laughs> June and you know June and July, and uh, and teams are deciding whether to buy or sell. Long season. Let's get to these tweets here. The starting block at the starting block writes in uh, pointing to a tweet from Alex Pavlich uh, that says there's 17 appearances to start the year without an earned run for Yarlene Garcia tying Joe Nathan's franchise record. He's at 22 straight going back to last season. So the starting block chimed in on that tweet. A lot of talk about haters start to the season. But here is another under the radar zero earned run streak worth mentioning on the show. Sweet. Starting block. You mentioned it. Thank you. Thanks, starting block. Uh, last one for today. Hank Van Zeel at Hank Van Zeel writes in, what happened to Major League Baseball's ban on the use of chewing tobacco? Was that quietly dropped from the latest CBA? I love Rafi Devers, but hate having to constantly see his baseball size hunk of chaw. Yeah, I think the, the quote unquote ban is more about uh, having it out in public. Like uh, the biggest thing was they didn't want players to be running around on the field with Kansas skull sticking out in their back pocket. <laughs> you don't see that anymore the way you used to. Uh, you don't see it on the bench. I think they understand that uh, if they're going to use it. But I, I also feel like like it's it's uh, you know, it's a sentiment that they can have. But these are grown men, you know, yeah. I and if uh, and I know have been have sadly you know seen like as we all have the you know loss of folks like Tony Gwynn you know late great general manager Kevin Towers um and you wonder about uh you know how different their uh, the their lives could have been if not for the use of chewing tobacco but people make their own decisions and players are making their own decisions and I don't think you can tell them what to do uh and when it comes to a product that's available for everybody does that make sense Taylor Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I would just, uh, you know, if you're uh, someone who likes dip, uh, again, that's your choice. But maybe try Zin out. You know, it's all chemicals, but, the, you know, you remove the uh, tobacco from your lips. So that that could be an option for you. All there right. You go. That does it for Bleacher Tweets. Thanks for writing in, everyone. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. Please follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks, everyone. That's all for today. My thanks to June, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one and done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.